Um, so one of the things that my wife gives me a hard time about is how I know so much random stuff. Um, I'm really good at reading about or learning about all kinds of things, and so we'll be doing stuff at night, and she'll say something to me like, so where did, what are you reading right now? And I'll tell her, and she goes, that actually interests you? Yeah, it kind of does. So um, a while back, I heard about a book called Decoding Superman. And um, it's not like comic book. Some of you are like, oh, com- no, no, no. Um, maybe you've heard this phrase. You ever heard someone say, like, I'm in the zone? Or they'll talk about being in the zone or in flow. Flow is actually the more technical term. I know who would have thought that flow is a technical term, but it is, right? And here's what I mean by being in flow. We think in these terms, you think about especially like extreme sport athletes, or you'll hear someone say, like, they'll play a basketball game and they just don't miss a shot, and they're like, I just was in the zone. Like the hoop looked like it was the size of an ocean. I couldn't miss it. Or a golfer hitting putts. Like that hole was huge today. Or you hear about an extreme sport athlete to be like, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. I just did it. And, and after the fact, you're like, that was incredible. Right? This happens when we talk about, you know, pitchers in baseball. They're like, the strike zone was massive and I could throw anything I wanted wherever I wanted it to go. I could do anything. Or the artist who loses track of time because they're so engrossed in their project. Or the musician who creates this new way of putting lyrics or notes together, you're like, oh, I didn't even know you could do that. Right, so they talk about these states in which these people are, that they're highly creative or highly productive, and they talk about them as being in flow or in the zone, if most of us know kind of that phrase. And so what so it's fascinating, there's a whole line of study that exists where they study people in the zone or in, in flow, and they want to know what, what's the, how does this work? And so the idea is they want to learn how to live in the flow state. Even businesses are now paying to figure out how they can get their employees to live in this space because in this state, our minds are more creative, they're more productive, they produce at its highest level, but what does it take to get there? It's fascinating, so this book's all about de- decoding Superman, and, and talks about um, the way in which, especially in extreme sport athletes, we're seeing these dramatic increases in productivity and records are falling at incredible speeds. And so there's a guy, I've, I actually had to write his name phonetically because I can't say it otherwise. Um, so I'm not even gonna show you his name. There's just a lot of letters. There's more letters than there are sounds. So here's his name. It's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Like I said, there's a lot of letters. I can show it to you later if you really are interested. Um, but he came about wanting to know, what is this flow state? What is, he really wanted to study happiness. You see, um, he came up with the idea of flow because as he did this study on happiness, he found that people were most living in this state when it came to the idea that they were like, they talked about as if I was flowing down a river. So you live in flow, in a flow state. Oh, okay, now you, now you get it, right? But here's his quote from Mihai. I'm not going to say his last name. I'll just stick with Mihai. The best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur if a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. So Mihai became this happiness researcher. He's a psychologist. And um, see, he was a prisoner during World War II. And so he was watching all these people who had had these jobs, their houses, all these things, and their lives had been utterly destroyed. And so what he was wondering is, 
what he was trying to figure out was all these people who lost all these sense of securities that they had known and held on to, um, most of them lost their identity and lost their purpose and were a wreck. But he noticed that some people were still happy. Some people in the middle of losing their job, their identity, their house, their security, were still happy in the middle of this. And so he wanted to know why. What led to that? And so he began to study all kinds of things, philosophy, religion, all these things. And he was trying to ask this question, what creates a life worth living? What might happen if we had increased productivity, happiness, joy? What, what does that look like? What, how do we get to that place? Right, and so they begin to find that when people learn to live kind of in the zone or in flow, they do incredible things. So Danny Way's a skateboarder. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, but he did this incredible thing years ago now, and he um, decided he was going to jump the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. Never been done before. So these guys are going to build this ramp. It costs like a half million dollars to build this ramp, but he's going he's to jump the Great Wall of China. And so they build this ramp, and they go, hey, uh, Danny, by the way, you thought you were going to jump X amount of feet, but it's actually closer to like 70 feet. No one's ever done this before, by the way. It never happened. No one's ever gone that distance on a skateboard on a jump. And he's like, well, whatever, let's do it. So he decides he's going to do a practice run, and he falls. He breaks his ankle, messes up his knee. It's a 10-story hike to back to where it starts, and he decides he's going to do it again on a broken ankle with a messed up knee. Makes no sense, right? Like, who no one should do this? He climbs back up, but just something clicked in his mind, and he did it. And keep in mind, the wrong movement, his ankle gives out at the wrong time, his knee buckles just a little bit. At, at the speed at which he's going, it's certain death. And he does it, not once, but four times. So he goes home, he gets, they fix his ankle. Two weeks later is the X Games. And no one expects Danny Way to compete in the X Games, except for Danny Way. Danny Way shows up to compete. He goes, and, and he does these like, incredible tricks, and then he falls again and re-breaks his ankle and messes up his knee, and he keeps going. And he didn't move. No one had ever done in competition. No one ever thought to do in competition. And winning the, the gold medal in the X Games and, and they're talking to him later about, like, what was going on? He goes, like, I don't know, just something in these, this season, just everything made sense. And it's almost as if it slowed down. What they found is people with near-death experiences, not, like, trying to die, but, but their brain would, like, speed up. And they would process all kinds of things in brief amounts of time that you and I are like, really, you can do that? But apparently you can. And so this whole point of this book, Decoding Superman, is to go, what does it look like to live in this kind of state? And I'm going to come back to it because right now, you're probably wondering what it has to do with what I've been talking about the last several weeks. And by the way, if you're, if you're online or you can even do this in the room, I, I'm curious, anytime you feel like you maybe have been in the zone or in this flow state in your own life, you can comment online. I'd be curious to know what those have been. You can do that right now if you want. I don't, I don't care. Um, but this becomes for us like, what, what does it look like when, for us to live in this kind of state? And so maybe here's what I have come to believe. Maybe we could live so wrapped up in communion with God, that we could live in a unique flow state in which God's spirit lives in us in ways that are like, oh, I didn't even know I could do that. I didn't know I thought that. 
fact, I, I couldn't believe what, if we might live in this kind of flow state, it might actually change the world. So I know I've been talking a series called Average Joes, right? Talking about how John and Peter are really just kind of average guys. And so if I'm talking about extreme athletes and world records, um, you and I are going, yeah, but we're average Joes. Like, we're the average guy. We're not those guys. But what if, what if, what if somehow we can bring this back around, the idea that extreme things can happen? And I, it's a fascinating book. You're going to learn about records falling at record speed. But it's because something clicked internally. And so John has been writing this letter, and he's hoping that people will have something click internally in their lives and in their minds. And so this is the letter of 2 John, right? Rarely do I talk about reading an entire book of the Bible in one sitting, but we're going to do that today. It's only 13 verses, so we're good. It won't take that long. Um, So here's what John writes. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us, will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth, and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and a such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. John's writing kind of uniquely in this way. He's writing to a particular lady, lady who leads this church, and he's also writing to a part- another lady, the Bride of Christ, also known as the church. So if I were to show you the original Greek language, you'd see that there are singular and plural yous, Y-O-U, like, but we don't translate it y'all or you all, we just say you. So that's sometimes confusing, right? But he's writing to a church saying these things, and he's trying to get them to understand this. Um, we're called to live from a place of love and live from a place of truth. And so if you're like me, you ask this question. What truth is John talking about? It's kind of simple, actually, that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah just means Christ. In fact, it's the full revelation of God the Father. So what's that mean? It means this, it means that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is the full revelation of God as Father, meaning that we can say nothing about God that we cannot say about Jesus. Okay, that's simple enough. 
And so then how do we define truth in that? Well, I like these words of N.T. Wright. He says this, truth happens when humans redeemed in the Messiah and renewed by the Spirit think, speak, and act in a way that corresponds to God's plan for the whole creation. In other words, when we live from love. This is the kind of thing that oozes from a person. It's just the overflow of their life. Maybe I think of it this way. Um, it's the scent of someone's life. It's their smell. Right? Now, that's dangerous, right? If I'm talking about the smell of someone, we've all known someone, and I hope you're not that someone who smells. I used to work with teenagers all the time, and I still do some. And I'll tell you this. Sometimes they really stink. Literally. They smell. I've pulled kids aside and gone, hey, you know, like, I don't know if you know this, but um, your body changes as you get older. And so I, I, here's some soap and here's some deodorant and, and use them. Like, it'd be good for you. You don't want to be the stinky kid at lunch, right? As this is the reality of, we can live from this place of truth where, where either we are the stinky kid, like not, no one wants to be near us because there's something oozing from us that isn't good. It's not loving. Or... When we learn to live from this place of love and truth, we begin to have stuff ooze from us in ways that the scent of us draws people in. It's the idea that we would say that it's loving kindness that leads people to repentance, not our anger, not our betrayal, not our whatever else. It's the scent of our life. So if that's truth, what is untruth? Like these words. Untruth, or telling lies by contrast, is therefore what happens when people think, speak, and act as though the present unredeemed world is all that there is, as though the way things are sets the pattern and boundary for the way things should be. So what's that look like in our lives? Well, we don't get to defend our behavior or bad behavior by saying someone else's behavior was bad. It doesn't make ours better. It's not how that works in any sphere of the world. As Christians, we go, no, my behavior is bad, my behavior is bad. It's not their fault that my behavior is bad. It's not, I don't get to say, well, I'm acting bad because they acted bad. That, that doesn't work. In fact, what we find is this denies the truth that God calls us to live from a place of love. It, it misses the mark on that. And so how do we live between truth and untruth? How do we know what the right thing to do? How do we walk in obedience? Well, put simply, we love. We just love. But what about, I know if you're like me, you're like, literally, John, all this guy writes about is love. It is. It is all John writes about again and again and again, from the gospel of John to 1 John to 2 John. And you'll probably see in 3 John, he continues to talk about love. Why? Because we so quickly move away from it and move to our own desires, our own selfishness, our own wants, or whatever is going on in the world around us, and we miss love. And so what does love look like? What is the powerful thing about love? What might happen if we live from this state? And so I love these words from William Barclay. He writes this, rebuke and criticism are liable to awaken only resentment and hostility. Argument and controversy are liable only to widen the split. Love is the one thing to heal the break and restore the lost relationship. 
What John wants us to know is the way you bridge these gaps, the way you fix what's broken, is you love. You don't argue why people are wrong and tell them you're right. You don't rebuke and criticize. You tell them you love them. And you actually love them. And you live as if you love them. And so John writes about this false teaching. And it's one of those weird things for us because we don't talk a lot about false teaching or new teaching or whatever it might be. And so what is John trying to say? Well, here's what he's saying. Anything that denies the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus would be false teaching. That's his concern. So anything that doesn't make Jesus central or primary, that would be false teaching. And here's where the challenge comes in. If it makes Jesus primary, and if it allows for his full humanity and his full divinity, then we can wrestle with what's being taught and say, should I take this as good or how do I wrestle through that? It's only if the things, those things are not true that we can be then dismissive of them. But then what does John say? How do we, how do we live dismissively of that? Well, here's what we do. Um, we never compromise with false teaching or things that are unbiblical. I should say, rather than unbiblical, because there's some things in the Bible we can argue for that, that really aren't very good, um, unchristlike. So what do we do then? Well, we never quit loving people and trying to lead them to the place of truth, to the place of knowing Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Even if they're off the beaten path and we think they're going the wrong direction, we continue to love them, long for them, to lean in and to know who Jesus really is and the way he changes everything in our lives. And then John ends this letter with a way that makes me think he must have known social media was coming. Um, or at least you could write comments on articles or he just knew the internet was gonna exist someday. I don't, I don't know. But he says this, I'm not gonna waste any more ink or paper. I'm not gonna write anything else, but I'm gonna come talk to you face to face. Novel idea, I know. I mean, can you imagine what might happen if we weren't keyboard warriors? Right? I always love that people post things online that they would never say to someone's face. It's one of my favorite things, right? I see people who are like in person, they're meek and they're mild, and they online are just like they're the biggest, toughest person you've ever met. Knock it off. If you're gonna say something mean online, don't say it. If you can't say it in someone's face, then don't say it. If you wouldn't say it if they're sitting at a table with you over lunch, then don't say it. And if you would say it sitting at a table and it is controversial, it is maybe a form of rebuke or criticism, then don't do it online. Do it face-to-face. I say this seriously. I love John's line here because I think we have forgotten somewhere along the line As Christians, we have seriously forgotten in the 21st century that the world is watching. And how does Jesus say the world will know who I am? By the way you love one another, not by your snarky comments online. Not by your political opinion, by the way you love. I don't care where you find yourself on which side of the aisle you vote for, I don't really care. But you better start loving better. Or we're gonna wonder why our kids and grandkids are like, you know, that Jesus guy, I like the idea of him, but his church, I don't know about those people. And honestly, there's not much I wouldn't give up for that. What about you? Don't you long for your kids and grandkids to live a life falling after Christ that so desperately might change the world that you would forsake all else for that? 
I don't know, I would. I can probably swallow some opinions at times. And hit delete. And wait 24 hours to post that and see if I'm still as angry the next day. Or send that email. Why, John, I think these words are so powerful. I've decided not to waste any more ink. But to come talk to you face to face. And so what, what's this look like for us? What we see in John's letter and all throughout is what's it look like to live out of the love of Jesus? What might happen if we live from the love of Jesus? What does it look like to live from loving obedience? So often we don't do stuff out of love. We can do it with all the wrong hearts. We can, we can do all kinds of things that we wish, you know, we can do them with all the wrong heart. Like, I, it's why, I, when, here's a, a kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, like sometimes I hear Christians go, what? We're taking the Ten Commandments off buildings. We, whoa, the Ten Commandments. And they'll get all riled up about the Ten Commandments. You know how many times Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments? Zero. Now, he references them, but he doesn't list them ever. What's he say? You know what the greatest commandment is? Love God and love your neighbor. I can't wait for someone to argue and say about the Ten Commandments. Why can't we put the Sermon on the Mount on that building? Well, because that sounds, that's actually way harder than the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. Go read the Sermon on the Mount, read the Ten Commandments. I'm all in on the Ten. Sermon on the Mount's way harder. Because see, here's the thing about rules. I can follow all the rules with the completely wrong heart. The truth is, in the New Testament, we often put ourselves, like when we read the Bible, we put ourselves in the position of like the hero of the story. Most of the time, we're the Pharisees. Where it says Pharisee, write like me, John, Bill, Susie. Write your name in there because that's usually who we are. We're not usually the hero of this story. We're usually the one that Jesus is going, oh, you people don't get it. Like, I know, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get it. See, we can follow all the commandments. We can follow the Ten Commandments and not be loving. It's why John says, hey, what's the commandment? Walk in loving obedience to God over the people. I don't care as much about the rules as I do about you loving people. You see, for Christians, love is not an optional extra. Love is not an optional extra. That's why the primary teaching of Jesus is seen in the, ten, in the Sermon on the Mount, not the Ten Commandments. So, Maybe you're wondering right now. He started talking about decoding Superman and living in flow or in the zone, if you prefer. And so far, I haven't made much of a connection. That's pretty fair, actually. One of the things I learned about this was really fascinating. So they, um, like, forgive me, because I'm not someone who understands the brain really well, but, but basically, they did some studies. And so we have the explicit part of our brain that follows rules and and does that kind of thing, right? And then we have the implicit part of our brain that's just kind of the subconscious that just does stuff and we don't even think about it, right? So they they did this this study on these, like, incredible chess players. And you would think, these world-class chess players, you would think that when you're playing chess that you'd really be thinking through all the critical thinking in the front part of your brain, right, that you'd be doing that, but they don't. It actually slows down and stops working for the most part. And it's their subconscious brain that's actually making the moves. Like, wait a minute, that, that makes no sense. You mean all the decision-making is not happening in the, in the critical thinking area? No, it's in their creative part of their brain. 
I know, it didn't make any sense to me either. I had to read it again. Actually, I listened to it, so I had to listen to it again. Hit rewind, <laughs> listen to that again. I was like, wait a minute, what? They had so been engrossed in this thing that they were doing that the way they, just the critical thinking had shut down, and it was just implicit, living in their subconscious brain. But they talk about how surfers had never done certain moves before, and one guy in this movie, Larry Hamilton, you can go research him, it's kind of fascinating, he did some moves that literally saved his life that no one had ever tried before. But the only way you'd ever thought to try them is if you were in the same situation where you might die. And so he did stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. But he's like, I never thought to do that. But in the moment, just something implicitly in his brain, his subconscious took over and he began to act in ways that he never thought he would act. And so here's what I have come to believe as I, as I studied kind of this, this flow state and living in the zone. Here's what I thought might be true for us. Um, When we live in flow with God, we may find that we begin to do things that we go, I never knew this was right, or I never thought I would do this, but I just find myself doing this. It's why I actually believe that, that every world religion has something in it, a glimmer of something that points us to Jesus. It's why you hear stories about Native Americans when they encountered early missionaries, they go, oh, you mean, and they would describe to them kind of this idea of Jesus, and you go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. There's something about the God's spirit that works in ways that we never could have seen or imagined. It's why I believe this to be true. We can think ourselves into new ways of living. We can think ourselves into new ways of living. This is called repentance, by the way. And you're going, well, how do we do that? Well, this is how the Holy Spirit works. What if you and I, in our explicit part of our brain, in our conscious part of our brain, made decisions? We're going we're gonna to invest time and energy into trying to figure out who Jesus is and follow after him. We're going to spend time in the Sermon on the Mount and in prayer. We're going we're gonna to just make that a rhythm of our life. And what we'll find is over time, then what we invest in that, then the subconscious, the implicit part of our brain will begin to function in ways we never saw, thought, or imagined. What we'll find is we live in flow as the spirit moves us and we'll go, huh, I used to think this, but now, now I'm doing this. I used to think this is how God wanted me to live, but the more I have spent time with him, the more I, I've just, I, I don't know when I, my thought process changed. I don't know when I began to see the world differently. I don't know when I began to see that person I thought of as an enemy, as someone whom I love. I don't, I don't know when that happened. See, this is how the Holy Spirit works. We can think our way to new ways of living. And so I would go so far to say it this way, that in flow, they say that people's creativity dramatically increases. What might happen if we lived in the flow of the Spirit, the overflow of the Spirit? What might happen if we lived in that way what might happen if those who are followers of Jesus became creative for the sake of the mission of God in the world for people to know the depth of God's love? Can you imagine the creative overflow that might come from that? I mean, can you imagine the dreams we might come up with, the things that we might do? It's why, like this, this week, our staff was um, watched a, a video uh, conference that they all are mad at me for watching, but at least I got one good thing out of it. Um, 
So many of you have on your phone this YouVersion Bible app. Um, it came from this creative element where this guy was like, you know, how do we figure out how to put the Bible in a place where people are already there? How do we come to a place where we help people know like God's love? How do, we, how do we help them engage in what God wants to do in their lives? How do we help them to understand who Jesus is and what's a way we could do that? And they came up with this app after failing at a website, trying to do all kinds of other things, but out of the creative element of living in communion with God. And now, they'll pass like one billion downloads. It's incredible. This, this is how God works. And we live in constant communion with him and we live in the flow of who God is. We begin to see who God is in the person of Jesus. We live from the place of the Sermon on the Mount. We wrestle with those words. We listen to good teaching. When those things become applicable to our life, the overflow, the subconscious part of our life becomes this, this aroma pleasing to God. And that happens when we take so, just two verses that John writes in this chapter, this whole letter. These two verses, verses two and three says, because of the truth which lives in us, will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and life. God wants to live at work in us. He wants us to live in the flow of his wants us to see the world radically changed and for us to be radically changed. And here's what I believe. God so desperately wants to redeem all the world. All of it. Wants to restore and heal all that's broken. And for some of us in this room, man, we, we sang a song earlier, Good, Good Father, and we go, ooh, my father's not good. I can't sing these words about a good, good father because my father, if you knew my dad, you would know why I can't sing that song. If I were to rewrite the words, good, good mother, some of you go, I, I couldn't sing that one either. What if, what if God really does want to redeem and restore and heal all that is broken? What if it begins in us? What if God's saying to us, hey, listen, you, you don't have to be an extreme sports athlete to learn to live in, in the zone or in the flow, in flow state. But you can live in such a way that my spirit is running through you that you don't even... You don't even know what's going on, but you know that you've been radically changed. This is what God desires to do in your life. Now, here's the thing about God. God doesn't force that upon us. Sometimes I wish he would, right? Sometimes I wish he would do it for me, or, or I've got some friends, or some family, or some of you, um, that I wish God would just force himself upon so you had no choice. You just have to live in the work of the Spirit. That's just not how God works. But I do believe that when we make a conscious decision to choose that, then subconsciously God works in ways that we don't ever see or imagine. And we wake up one day and we go, you know, I don't know when it happened, but I'm not the man or woman I used to be. I don't know what happened, but I've come to believe God really is a good, good father who desperately loves me. I don't know what happened, but I've come to believe that somehow the resurrection really is real and God wants to resurrect something in me and give me new life. I don't know what happened, but I decided a long time ago that I was just going to follow Jesus, and I've been living in the flow of his spirit, and it has changed who I am. And so here's today's invitation. Say yes to Jesus. 
make every decision you can implicit, they're the explicit part of your brain, their conscious decision to be about following Jesus and then watch what happens over time that implicitly, subconsciously, God will do stuff in you that you never dreamed or imagined, but he will never begin that work unless you say yes. It's today. My greatest dream, my greatest hope, not only that each of you will say yes to Jesus, but each of us, our kids, our grandkids, every school I pass while driving, every home I drive by, is that we might even see in our lifetime God so redeemed the world in which we live that by the creative work of living in the flow of his spirit, the world might drastically change, not because of what any government does, but because of what his church does. That's my prayer. That's my dream. That's my hope for you and I. What might happen if you and I lived in close daily and lived out of the place of God's love? Father, will you help us today as we try to figure out what it looks like for us to make every decision we can so that we can live in the knowledge of your love, and yet at the same time for us to live in such a way that you might change the world. So Father, we ask that today you would help us to say yes to you and that we would make every decision we can in our lives to live in relationship with you and that we might find that that really does change everything. And so Father, help us to trust you. Help us to be radically changed. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name.